Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. My guest today is Greg Klass, Professor of Law at Georgetown University. Greg's scholarship focuses on contract law and legal theory, and today we have a special episode to discuss an important historical figure in the law of contracts, Arthur Corbin. Hi, Greg. Thanks for accepting my invitation. Yeah, it's great to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Great. So let's start with the uh, basic, a basic biographical uh, picture of Arthur Corbin. Who was Arthur Corbin? So Arthur Corbin is best known uh, for Corbin on contracts. That's one of the uh, two major treatises on contract law in the United States. Williston wrote the first and Corbin the second major multi-volume treatise that really uh, attempted, each attempted to organize the law of contracts um, uh, in a new way and provided a guide that was enormously influential. I should mention the third major treatise, which is Farnsworth, Farnsworth's work that comes much later. But Corbin on contracts remains enormously influential and a go-to source for, uh, for, for figuring out what contract law is in the United States. Um, he was born, just for the biographical uh, details, he was born in 1874. He grew up in Kansas and actually taught school in Kansas before he went to law school. Uh, he got his JD from Yale in two years in um, 1899, doing very well there. But then after Yale, it's kind of curious, he decided to go back uh, to Colorado. So he uh, went to the town of Cripple Creek and practiced for three years. Cripple Creek is a, um, I mean, it's now basically a ghost town is my understanding, but at the time it was a mining town, not far from uh, Denver or Colorado um, or Silver or Colorado Springs. Uh, and then he, then, so he's practicing kind of in this backwater mining town and he gets the call to go back to Yale as its first full-time professor in 1903. And he works at Yale from 1903 to 1943. During that time, he worked very closely with Samuel Williston on the first restatement of contracts and, uh, and published a, a whole bunch of articles. But um, it's not until after he retires. So he retires in, in, in 1943. He, there was, they, Yale had mandatory retirement at the age of 68 then. It's not until after he retires that Corbin on contracts appears actually in 1950, so seven years after he's retired, and he's 75 years old when his major treatise appears. Uh, and then he publishes a second edition when he's 88, which ha includes major revisions of the first edition, and dies in uh, 1967 at the age of 93. I mean, it's really incredible when you think about it. You're someone born in Kansas in 1874. Uh, he says, you know, when they when they moved to Lawrence, his family, he was, I think, 13 years old. He walked 75 miles in bare feet. So he came from uh, educated but relatively humble beginnings. And uh, uh, and he lives until 1967. Right. The summer of love uh, dies, uh, dies in New Haven. So how unusual was it for a Yale graduate at this point in history to graduate from law school, do well, and instead of going to New York to work in a law firm or to D.C. to work for the government, to go to a small town in Colorado. Was it yeah. as unusual as it sounds? I mean, I, 
I wish I I wish I knew more. It's it's um, one thing we haven't talked about is that all of Corbin's papers have been lost, and so uh, I have the same intuition as you that that would be an unusual path to take. Um, but I I have no idea why he went back to Colorado. I think I've I've I mean I'm I'm not a historian, and so I haven't delved into every possible archive. But um, as far as I know, we don't really know why he went back there. Uh, he always spoke fondly of it in his later writings, if a little bit dismissively of of his own abilities uh, as a beginning lawyer, kind of just hanging his shingle in this in this mining town. That's great. There are two uh, major figures that Corbin uh, had uh, an important relationship with, and you you touch upon this in this chapter that you've been working on on Corbin. So one is. You already mentioned him, Sam Williston. What is the relationship between Williston and Corbin? Because I think the received wisdom puts them kind of at odds with each other. But if I understand yeah. your chapter correctly, the 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 the, the picture should re should really be a bit more complicated, right? That's right. I should I should say that the chapter that we're talking about is uh, forthcoming. I should give a pitch for the book where it's going yes, to appear. Yes, please do. Which please is, do. Uh, some some of your listeners may be familiar with the collection Scholars of Tort Law that came out a few years ago, and the same editors are putting together with Oxford University Press a volume on Scholars of Contract Law. So there'll be a chapter on Williston in there and, uh, and a number of other uh, uh, major contract scholars and theorists, mainly treatise writers, actually. Anyway, the picture that many people have is probably uh, best represented in Grant Gilmore's the, the Death of Contract. You know, Gilmore treats Williston as the old guard, along with uh, Langdell and Holmes, and and Corbin is sort of the the revolutionary, uh, fighting against the formalism of that previous generation and leading the way for the realists. Corbin himself always rejected that, as does Williston. Um, Williston spoke very highly of Corbin, and it, Williston invited him when when Williston took over or took on the project of being reporter of the restatement of contract law in the twenties. He asked Corbin to to work with him uh, because B Corbin said later uh, because of Corbin's work with Hofeld. And Williston wanted that theoretical perspective to be represented in the book. And there was a whole committee that worked on the restatement, but Williston made it really clear that, that Corbin was his most important collaborator on that project. And in fact, Corbin uh, wrote the chapter on remedies. So Williston credits him as the reporter on the chapter on remedies. So the two of them worked closely together. Uh, when Williston died, Corbin wrote that he he considered him an older brother. The two had very different personalities, but they uh, they were and I don't know that they were ever close friends, but they were clearly close collaborators and uh, uh, thought very highly of one another. That's not to say they don't have different approaches, right? right? I just don't think it's it's completely correct to pit them in opposition to one another, right? Uh, and the second, the second figure that I wanted to ask you about is uh, Wesley Newcomb-Hoffold, and yeah. how 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 does Corbin intersect with Hoffold? Because I understand they were colleagues, uh, and also that Hoffold was influential in how Corbin thought about contracts. He was so Hoffold uh, um, publishes fundamental legal conceptions in uh, 1913 in the Yale Law Journal. The reason, I don't know if this is the reason why the journal took it, but uh, when they received the manuscript, apparently 
Corbin got his hands on it. They asked Corbin's opinion and he highly recommended it to them. So he's partly responsible for the publication of, of that foundational piece of Hofeld's. And then uh, he was, uh, as I mentioned, one of the first full-time faculty at Yale, and he recommended that they hire Hofeld, which they did in, I think, 1914, the following year. Hofeld died in 1918. He had a very brief career. He died in the Spanish flu. Uh, and the two of them for those four years uh, did work very closely together. It's nice when you read when you read Corbin's letters about him. He refers to him as Ho, right? So Hofeld, H O H. So Hofeld among among that crowd was just Ho, and um, Corbin himself sort of took on the Hofeld schema. And really, from from shortly after that piece appeared, it's the same. The Hofeldian schema begins appearing. First, in Corbin's teaching, it's he used it as a as a pedagogical tool, teaching contracts at Yale, and then in his writing. So, in he was before he published his own treatise, he was an editor of Anson's uh, uh, Anson on Contracts, the U.S. edition of the English um, case, the English treatise, and uh, in the in his preface to Anson, he lays out the Hofeldian categories and uh, uses them really for the rest of his life. Corbin himself was really interested in conceptual clarity and uh, thought that we could make great progress in jurisprudence by clearing away the underbrush of sort of ossified legal conceptions to mix metaphors and, um, and used Hofeld's categories to that end. So th this takes me to another thing that I wanted to ask you, which is what is... Corbin's relationship to conceptual analysis, because uh, both when reading his scholarship and also when reading your chapter, it seems to me there's a bit of a tension in how he approaches legal concepts and anal analytical methods uh, in general. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's clearly not a purely analytic thinker. He's an empiricist. He's a treatise writer, right? So uh, uh, he cares deeply about judicial reasoning, which is not purely analytic. He's not, another way of putting this is, is he's no Langdellian formalist, right? He's not, in fact, he's exactly the opposite. The goal is not to uh, deduce legal principles or legal rules from first principles or through conceptual analysis. Uh, instead, the goal is to come up with concepts that I would say concepts that don't mislead. Um, this is a little bit in my own personal history, but I, I think of it as his project and Hofeld's project as, as comparable to something Wittgenstein was trying at the turn of the century, not in the later Wittgenstein, which is what everybody reads today, but in the Tractatus, you know, where Wittgenstein sort of tries to come up with a, a purely formal language, a transparent and formal language uh, that, as he says, Uh, the, that language itself is purely analytic. In other words, it contains no truths. It's just a way of speaking that's not going to mislead, that doesn't bake any premises into it. And I think that's that's the how Corbin used conceptual analysis. He wanted to get rid of some of the old ways of thinking. Um, uh, and particularly, although he wasn't familiar with Langdell, he was a, a self-taught legal scholar, But but he really did react against that what we today call formalist legal reasoning, reasoning from first concepts or from definitions, 
Uh, and, and so for him, conceptual analysis, as I said, it was a way of clearing away that underbrush so that we could do clear policy thinking or moral reasoning or think about the law as it is and as it should be without being misled by language. Right. So there's um, uh, a part in your chapter where you talk about uh, Corbyn's uh, uh, analysis of consideration and where you basically see how he kind of empties consideration of all substantive content, right? So is that an example of what you're trying to suggest yeah, does in general with legal concepts? That, that is, that is. Um, you know, you see Williston, who, as, as we all teach our students, or many of us teach our students uh, in, in our first-year contracts courses, Williston defines consideration using the bargain theory, right? Consideration is, an, is something that's given in exchange for the promise. And that's a, that's a fairly substantive definition. And uh, uh, Corbin, and then uh, 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 a lot of things follow from that, from that definition, including a whole bunch of exceptions to the consideration doctrine that Williston identifies in his treatise. Corbin, in distinction, says, I can't define consideration. Consideration, or the definition I'll give is completely empty. Consideration is any of those reasons that the courts have identified for the enforcement of an agreement between the parties. And, uh, and he does that intentionally so that he's not setting up a rule and then identifying a whole bunch of exceptions. He's saying, I don't want to bake any conclusions into my definition of consideration. Uh, those that will come from reading the case law. And when I read the case law, what I come up with is a whole bunch of different reasons that courts have given for the enforcement of an agreement, including exchange, including reliance, and, and including a seal and many other things. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think that would be a good example of his analytic approach. So when, when I tried to situate Corbin as, uh, I mean, Corbin's views of legal decision-making, it seems to be, okay, it's clear he's not a formalist. He doesn't think that uh, legal definitions carry normative implications, right? He doesn't think that we should deduce the outcome of a case from the definition of the doctrine of consideration. He's also not a consequentialist in the kind of modern sense of in the way in which, I don't know, a judge like Posner or Easterbrook would be a consequentialist decision maker. He's also not interested in, in seeing legal decision making as kind of an applied moral philosophy or an applied political philosophy. So those, are, those I would think, are the three big modes of legal decision making in American legal culture at a very broad level. Uh, and so uh, I think it, he, what Corbyn is doing is perhaps reflective of a broader trend in the beginning of the 20th century or the first half of the 20th century. Uh, I'm thinking about Cardoso particularly, uh, which I would say is, is not consequentialist. It's not about generating the best consequences from some normative perspective. It's not about implementing a political philosophy. It seems to be about making decisions that work given the practice that the judge is acting within and the practical needs of the parties you are deciding the dispute for. Is that, do you think that's a fair reconstruction? I do. Corbyn's, um, uh, jurisprudence? 
Right. And it's interesting you say the practical needs, because, uh, you know, I think this way of, of uh, thinking about judicial decision making in particular, and of course, like a lot of people at that time, the focus was on ju- judicial decision making, not on legislation or other ways of lawmaking. I think it was pr- pragmatic in the original sense of the term of the American pragmatists, um, and uh, which which did focus on what would work. It's interesting that you mentioned Cardozo. It's worth just dropping a footnote to say that it was Corbin who invited Cardozo to give the stores lectures at Yale that became the nature of the judicial process, right? One of Cardozo's great uh, uh, books of, of judicial theory. And Corbin was a lifelong fan of Cardozo's judicial reasoning. You know, I would say that in, in so pragmatist might be one word for it. Another uh, might be pluralist. When Cor- Corbin is clear that there are many sources to judicial reasoning, um, and that those include those include, of course, precedent and the judge's reading of past cases and understanding of of the received wisdom of the common law is the way he might describe it, but also the judge's own moral sense, the judge's the judge's prejudices. Uh, he's I don't think he's um, sort of starry eyed about how judging happens. Uh, but it's not a, it's not any one approach, right? It's not merely moral reasoning. It's not only consequentialism. All of those figure into it. So then you might say, so what's the criterion for correctness? Does that just mean that anything goes? Is that a kind of a judicial skepticism? Whatever the judge eats for breakfast determines the right outcome. What Corbin says is that uh, the key is that the those decisions that survive are those decisions that are in tune with social values, or zitlikite is the word is the word he uses, um, and he's very attuned to soci. You might say this is a sociological jurisprudence, um, and so he has almost an evolutionary theory. Judges decide on multiple grounds, and 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 th- there are lots of input to, to judicial decisions. But the rules that survive are the rules that work and the rules that correspond to the values of society as they evolve over time. And so so what that this is a kind of almost a survival of the fittest, but it's not it's not through uh, competition for uh, for sexual partners or or survival in that sense. It's competition among judicial decisions for those that correspond to the needs and values of society. Right. And that, I think, falls very close or or seems to be very close to some conceptions of the common law tradition, right? Uh, And this, you know, this kind of uh, perhaps a bit idealized, but nevertheless, I think to some extent, true conception of the common law is this kind of incremental form of uh, lawmaking that always puts law kind of in a following position or in a secondary position, trying to evolve in response to social changes and never departing too far away from uh, folk understandings, from kind of from what actually happens on the ground. So in that sense, sometimes Corbyn reads to me a bit like a like a common law romantic, even though he's famous for being, you know, he's sometimes associated with realism. He's sometimes seen a bit as a as the skeptic uh, when they com- compare him to Williston. 
But but it seems to me he's also a big believer in the virtues of the common law method, right? I think that's right. I mean, so many of the realists uh, were very enamored with the social sciences and wanted a scientific foundation for law, and Corbin categorically rejected that. And I think I think romantic's a good uh, uh, a good word for his attitude towards the common law. He he wasn't de- he wasn't out to tear down the temple. Uh, he was writing from within it and was looking, you know, maybe the kind way of saying it would be for its internal logic, for the best way to make sense of the common law. One of my uh, favorite discoveries, or in 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 writing this chapter uh, for myself, was was his own explanation of why the of the restatement project and why it was so valuable. For and this is this is in the a lecture he gave in the 1920s, so while they were still working on the restatement of contracts, on the first restatement of contracts. Uh, So in the lecture, he says the real value of the restatement project is it provides a snapshot of the rules that exist today. It, it, It gives a clear picture of where we are. And once we have that clear picture, then we can decide whether we like them or not, and the law can further evolve past them. Uh, and he compares the, and that's the common law method for him. And he compares that to uh, a code, a civil code, um, and uh, says the problem with the civil code is, is it invites you just to focus on the language and intentions of the legislature that drafted it. It's it's frozen in time, and so you stop paying attention to whether it works or not. Uh, the common law is. A collection for him of 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 not simply rules but working rules. That's the term he uses again and again and again. And in fact, it's it's in the subtitle of his treatise, right? Corbin on contracts, a treatise on the working rules of contract law. And working rules are rules that are always defeasible, that we can always revisit. Um, uh, again, to kind of look at at contemporary philosophy, it's it's a little bit like Quine's holism. Right, you, 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 any any piece of the fabric of knowledge can be revised. You can't revise the whole thing at once, but 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 any piece of it is defeasible based on contrary evidence or experience. And I think that's how Corbin. I mean, he obviously he, he wasn't much of a philosopher, but uh, uh, I think that's how that's the picture of the common law that he draws. It is romantic, though, also in that it trusts judges to perhaps an unreasonable extent. Right, Corbin was not was not attuned to all of the injustices that were built into the common law. He talks briefly uh, in the introduction to Corbin on contracts about, you know, uh, uh, the differential powers of, of labor and capital a little bit and the role class plays. You never see him talking about race or gender or the other ways that, that contract law has been um, sort of has been unjust over the years as a result of judicial prejudices. Yeah, so w- one one thing that I was thinking when you were describing Corbin's view of the common law is I wonder to what extent that picture leaves space open for um, legal alienation or kind of problematic divergences between social norms or socially accepted uh, views and commitments and the common law, because it seems to me, because it's so 
um, reliant on this idea of working rules that are being adjusted all the time kind of to follow the lead of society, it doesn't provide us, I think, a, a good explanation or a good way to understand, to describe the ways in which, you know, sometimes law really diverges from what people actually think should be correct and and produces these kind of obscure uh, results that people find uh, puzzling. Uh, it seems to be that Corbyn might have a, a too rosy view of the common law to some extent, which seems to be at odds also with the received wisdom of Corbyn the realist, Corbyn the, the skeptic. I mean, he, he definitely has, I would say, a rosy view of judges and judges ability, both judges ability to uh, uh, or judges sincerity in the project that they engage in their attention to the wisdom of past cases and their attention to the needs of parties and the values of society and their responsiveness, right. To the values of society. And, and, you know, today we think of judges because of, of what's what particularly the federal judiciary as more highly politicized, than people did then. Um, it's, you know, this might go back to Corbyn's uh, relationship with um, Cardozo. Uh, you know, I actually think if you want a great judge, Cardozo is a great judge because of his attention to the to the needs of the parties before him, to the, to the transactions before him. His contracts decisions are wonderful uh, in the way they, they pay attention to not just the law that's there, but to what makes sense in this context for these parties. But uh, uh, Cardozo's a great judge because most judges aren't that great. <laughs> um, you know, that's why we that's why we 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 think so highly of Cardozo. And um, there's plenty of law that is not attuned to what's really going on in the world. Plenty of judicial decisions that aren't. Yeah, there's this great uh, dualism in Cardoso, which I think is probably true of Corbyn too. In fact, I think that Corbyn actually says this about Cardoso, which is that Cardoso uh, is really attentive to the specifics of the case and he won't let strict legal logic get in the way of what he thinks is the reasonable decision for the dispute he has before him. But he does that in a way that is very elegant, that doesn't kind of... Uh, ignore legal doctrine, but rather uses legal doctrine uh, to as a tool or as a ladder to get where he wants to get. And and I think the phrase that Corbyn uses is like, you don't have the perception that uh, everything is changing dramatically, but by the end of the decision, you know that things are not exactly as they were before uh, Cardozo decided the case, right? And I think right. that, that really captures what I think you're telling us Corbyn sees as the great virtue of of common law judges in their best version, which would probably be great. Right, which is a form of which is a form of incrementalism, right? Right, um, and uh, minor changes, incremental changes that add up to to really new rules. And I mean, maybe this is partly the time when uh, when Corbyn is writing and Cardozo is judging. Right, think about in contract law the emergence of promissory estoppel. This is, in effect, what Williston does, right? Williston deserves credit for for both. Um, I mean, you can criticize the bargain theory of consideration, but having, having uh, pushed that, he then collects a whole bunch of cases that don't fit that model 
and uh, you know, particularly um, the case we we all um, the, the cases we all read where court, where courts are struggling, you know, using estoppel to try to figure out what do we do when there's reliance, but there's no exchange. It's a gratuitous promise, and and um, you know, then Williston collects those and gives it a name, promissory estoppel, uh, in the first edition of his treatise. So it's not a false picture, right? It was happening at that time. And partly it's happening because this is the age of the treatise writer. Um, uh, you know, Williston and then Corbin are really uh, synthesizing movement in the law into, into sort of more crisply stated rules. Yeah. Um, this is not... This is not directly related to Corbin, but I wonder if you have, I've always been curious about this, and I wonder if you have sort of a, at least an intuition about what explains the disappearance of the treaties um, in our legal culture. Because um, if you think about classical American contract law, it's a contract law that is built on the basis of the conceptual tools and taxonomies developed by treatise writers, by Williston, by Corbin. Yeah. The last one we have, I think, is Farnsworth, who you mentioned. And then after that, I don't think we have another big treatise. I might be missing something, but... No, we, we don't. We have new editions of those right, treatises by, right. by, so, by people who are really good at what they do, but they're, but we don't have anyone providing an, a new synthetic approach. And uh, so the only thing in contract law, we, you know, the only new thing is the draft restatement of consumer contract law, uh, which is trying it for a very narrow area of, of the law. So one reason why this book, uh, uh, why being the, the scholars of contract law book, of course, had, we had a conference over the summer and everyone presented their chapters. And it was interesting for me to learn. I had always sort of thought about the English uh, treatise writers. They do come first in the 19th century, uh, Pollock and Anson and others. Uh, but what I learned from, from reading other, other people's chapters is it really actually was Williston was the first major multi-volume, really systematic, deeply researched treatise. And uh, then Corbin sort of, in my view, went past even that, right? Uh, arguably Corbin did was truer to the case law that's maybe contentious but but it was actually these these um uh us treatise writers that sort of were the most systematic and uh for a lot of for a lot of the british treatise writers they were also drawing from uh Sauvigny and from civil codes and and other sources in in writing on english law so so why then right one explanation is perhaps uh, the West reporter system. We suddenly have we suddenly have access to way more cases than we ever did before, and you know you're drowning in this sea of cases. You need you need a guide. You need uh, and and so there's both there's both a new felt need, and you've got suddenly all of these materials that are easily available. Williston never has to leave the Harvard Law Library. Right, he's got all of the case reports right there, and um, and so 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 there's sort of the uh, just empirical data uh, to write it to write a great treatise of this of these of this type um, at that time, right at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, 
so maybe that's a, so so both the need and and the um, availability of those materials may be a part of it. There's also, of course, this is the time when uh, law in the United States becomes an academic subject. First at Harvard, right, it becomes part of universities. Law schools had previously been independent uh, independent schools, often run by the local bar, and as they get folded into universities. And suddenly you have professors with tenure who take on more scholarly projects and you now have a group of, you know, of, of people who are ready to build their careers and they need a project. Uh, and so, so writing a treatise is a pretty good one uh, at the time. It is, I, I, I do want to emphasize, it's, I find it just so remarkable that Corbin spends his whole, basically his whole professional career writing Corbin on contracts. And it doesn't come out until years after he, till he's 75 years old, seven years after he retires from, uh, so he's, and he continues working on it for years after. Williston published his much earlier in his own career, uh, which is one of the reasons I sort of draw a contrast between the amount of case law that they try to, that they read and try to synthesize in their works. Okay, but then what explains that after Williston and Corbin, it seems like the something shifted, and it might be a, a matter of the incentive structure for academics, right? That, that probably plays a role. But it seems to me there's also like a deeper kind of cultural um, explanation, which is as a as a community of scholars, I think we're just less interested in this type of yeah. project than we were. I mean, not we, that they were 100 years ago or 90 years ago. I think that's true. So, um, I mean, I do think partly it's intellectual. I don't want to just say fashion, but, um, you know, as, as, with the, as, as law schools become increasingly academic, I'm a JD PhD, right? Uh, I'm interested, uh, I am very interested in the law and what courts do, but I'm also interested in applying in, in applying the methods and and tools I learned from elsewhere to the law, which is a very different project than Williston or Corbin was. And, and frankly, um, as you said, the academic incentives has changed. Uh, it's not, if you're looking for tenure, right, you don't start out writing a treatise. That, Certainly that, not one that you will publish after you retire. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so you know, our like analytic methods are, are are weighted more heavily than sort of uh, more practice oriented skills. I wonder also though if if uh, you know there was a kind of a, a synthetic project waiting to be done at that time that no longer exists in the same way. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so, so we've talked a lot about Corbin's views about the common law and about uh, judicial decision-making, but uh, let's talk a bit about contracts. So what, what would you say are Corbyn's basic or central commitments in contract theory that set him apart from other, uh, from other writers in uh, when he was uh, working? So let me answer it two ways. One is what's distinctive about Corbyn on contracts. And I think, this goes back to what we've already been talking about. It's his theory of the common law, but that really infuses his treatise on contracts law, which is just 
when you when you sit down and read it, you know, I'll, I, before now I'd mostly I go to Corbin on contracts when I have a question about contract law, or a question about some very specific question. I want to know how is Corbin thinking about this this question about contract law. But when you sort of just start sit down and read it, and I hadn't, I'm not saying I've read all the volumes start to finish, but when you just kind of read chapters at a time, you see that. While he talks a lot about what courts are doing and has strong opinions about what the what the uh, legal rules at play are and what drives decisions, a lot of what he's talking about is sort of the theory of the common law and and not to be misled. In the treatise, he's he's actually doing a theory of the common law at the same time and emphasizing that all of the uh, rules that he's talking about are are rules that that work in these contexts but aren't there for all times and he's often talking about how judges actually decide decisions as much as what the correct rule is so that's just an interesting sort of that's the theory of that that's embedded in Corbin on contracts the generic one i do think that gilmore is not wrong so if in the death of contract it, gilmore i think is wrong to set corbin up as the great revolutionary leading the way for the realists, but he's not wrong that Corbin is attached to something like a reliance theory of contracts. Uh, it, it doesn't, it's not overt in the theory in the same, in the book, in the same way that in Atiyah's work, you see reliance is there all the time, including, including in his uh, treatise on contract law. But the reliance theory is there at the beginning. And Corbin says very clearly that the, the, Contract law has many purposes, but the fundamental purpose is to protect the reasonable reliance of uh, reasonable reliance on one another's commitments, and that's why there's a long chapter on promissory estoppel and other forms of reliance-based liability. That's probably why I I, I would say that Corbin is uh, probably responsible. I don't have the documentary evidence, but for section 45 in the second in the first restatement, and then the second again, uh, uh, which talks about um, the beginning of performance in a unilateral offer, uh, locking in the offeror to irrevocability. That's a form of protecting a form of reliance, and so you see that popping up, uh, you know, uh, at crucial places in the analysis of Corbin on contracts. I don't think that he derives rules from it. It's not, I, I would hesitate to call it a first principle. That would be a criticism of Corbin. He doesn't think we should be re reasoning from first principles about contract law, but it is it is a theme of the book. And he also has some distinctive views about contract interpretation, right? I mean, particularly when you ju juxtapose them uh, with uh, Williston's views, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he is more of a, he is... Uh, consistently uh, drawn to contextualism and uh, specificity as against uh, Williston's textualism and formalism. Um, and so they are really at odds with that. And I would say that in, in, the, in the restatement process, uh, in the second restatement, so Williston is the reporter for the first restatement and probably Corbin's greatest influence on the second restatement is in his theory of interpretation. The second restatement adopts Corbin's approach pretty much wholesale uh, in 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 describe in its own theory of meaning that meaning never happens. The meaning is always meaning in use, 
and meaning always requires words have no meaning outside of their context of their use, which I would say is overstated. And uh, a lot of philosophers of language would disagree with, but has been, was enormously influential uh, in the drafting of the, of the second restatement. You see it in trainers' opinions in the, on, the, in the, on the California Supreme Court. Pacific Gas is basically all Corbin in, in the way Trainer uh, uh, reasons, and, and in a lot of other theorists ar- around that time. I think a lot of us in the years since have uh, rejected that theory of meaning, um, uh, which isn't to say that it's all wrong, but it's, it's only half of the story, I would say. Right. Yeah, it's true. I, I when, when you read a trainer in Pacific Gas and Electric, it's basically Corbin. Uh, this idea that words don't have constant references, that you cannot understand what anything means without the, a reference to context, that seems very close to what Corbin says. Uh, I agree. Some and of I, the sections think, that you you analyze in the chapter. I I, I don't I. I don't know where Corbin gets it. Um, you know, I, in other words, I don't have a. I know where he gets some of his ideas, Hofeld or um, or even Williston in some cases, or uh, uh, Cardozo. This theory of meaning, um, I think it's a kind of a naive theory of meaning, that meaning is the ideas that uh, uh, words excite in someone's head. Uh, and And, you know, if you start with that naive theory, which maybe is again related to this reliance theory of contract. If what we really care about is reasonable reliance, Cor- Corbin himself derives his his approach to interpretation from that reliance theory and says, "Well, what we should care about is is the uh, the party's actual reasonable understandings, and their actual understandings are always context specific because we're always using words in context. That's not wrong, but that's not the only meaning words can have. And it's not obvious that in all circumstances, that's the meaning that courts should focus on when interpreting contra- contracts. Sometimes, yes, but not always. Yeah, you mentioned something about uh, where, does, um, where does Corbin get these ideas about meaning from? And, and that reminded me of... Um, the question I had when reading your chapter, which is that when you read, I don't know, um, Carl Llewellyn, you clearly see the influence of uh, German theorists writing a generation or so before him. When you read uh, Lon Fuller on expectation and reliance, it's very clear that, I mean, just by looking at the footnotes, that he's using distinctions that you can find in German uh, legal thought. Uh is something like that going on with Corbin, or is he kind of a 100% American contract theorist? Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't want to make. I've written a chapter. I don't want to. I'm, I'm, I'm not the. I, I haven't read all Corbin, and I, I can't say that I, I'm, uh, uh, sort of the final authority on this. But my sense, fair enough. My, my, no, but my sense is Corbin himself said that when he started teaching, um, and and for the for the early, not just when he began, but in the early years of his career. He never had a training in legal theory. He didn't. He didn't start by reading legal theory. He came to it later in his own scholarly development. And and but yet he had developed a lot of his ideas by the early twenties. Um, and so 
I do think that uh, it's hard to say that he's borrowing from others, although you can locate him within within other theorists. A lot of it is uh, strikes me as sui generis. It's his own. It's his own reflection on problems of law, on overcoming maybe his own or his students' naivete about law, and thinking through the judicial opinions on how law actually works and how judges actually reason. You already discussed some uh, topics on which Corbyn has been influential. So you talked about the um, beginning of performance of, uh, in, in the case of unilateral contract, as making the offer uh, a firm offer. You talked a bit about contract interpretation. But I was wondering, at a more general level, where do you see um, Corbyn's influence in how we think about contracts today in, in kind of the 1L version of contracts that we teach. Um, how much do we owe to Corbyn or how, how much does our understanding of contracts depend on his specific contribution? Now that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think just anyone who, anyone who writes a treatise has an enormous influence, not, not only writing the treatise, but working so 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 deeply on the first restatement and having such an influence on the second. So that's an influence that's almost impossible to summarize because he is the source for so much contract law. Not the original source, but he is the go-to source when you when you want a clear articulation of the rule, whether through the restatement or in his own treatise. So there's there's sort of a kind of a a, a a, a particularistic influence, but that's pervasive. Corbin helped us understand so many rules of contract law that were that were le in one way or another less clear than before. You know, today his his theory of judging is not in fashion, and his I think theory of the common law. Uh, you know, um, John Goldberg defends it in his own defenses of Cardozo's theory of the common law. I think the two of them were very close. But I wouldn't say uh, that that's sort of dominant in any way in the academy. Or although although I do think it's a it's that doesn't make it wrong. It's just not um it's not the kind of theorizing that gets done these days. Uh, so I don't know that there's a sort of a Corbin um approach or claim that you can say is is dominant. Um, I do think, though, that uh, just by virtue of writing a work like that, you change the course. You, you, in, in minor and big ways, you change you change the direction of the ship uh, bit by bit through, through, through every one of those pieces. Excellent. And the last question I wanted to ask you is, have your views on contract changed anything by reading about Corbyn and from Corbyn a bit, uh, a bit more deeply? Like I, I know I, I, I obviously know your work uh, as a contract theorist, and it's obvious that you have some important disagreements with Corbyn in terms of contract interpretation, his theory of meaning. But is there anything that made you a bit more of a Corbyn follower after doing engaging in this project? Yeah. Um I'll say I've I've always felt sympathetic to Corbin, um, and so which is one of the reasons I was really happy to read this chapter, um, to to write this chapter. Excuse me. Uh, 
I've always been sympathetic to his way of thinking. And what I like about it, I wish I could remember where he says this, but he's talking about one rule. I don't remember exactly where, but he says, this is a, this is a line that's drawn by many hands over many generations, right? And as such, it's, it's wavering and it's, it's unclear. Um, but that's how, that's how common law lawmaking works. And that's what brings sort of the two pieces that, that I've always found attractive about his way of thinking about the common law and about contract law in particular is his empirical pluralism, his recognition that there is more going on here than a single principle or uh, even a single, you know, that's why he's, he, is he a consequentialist? Yes, and. Right? Is he a moral philosoph- moral theorist of contract law? Yes, and right. He's he's he recognizes that it's a complex social. It's a social practice, and as such, is always complex. So that's always attracted me. And then um, the uh, the defeasibility or the idea that this is these are working rules, and we're everything's up for revision. We are. Uh, uh, these are hard questions um, uh, that we're asking. How to? What are the rules that society is going to run by? They involve compromises, and uh, uh, and they should be open to revision and rethinking and change over time. That's his way of thinking about contract law that I find just enormously attractive. Great. Um, well, Greg, thank you so much. I really enjoyed reading the chapter, and I enjoyed our conversation. And I really can't wait to to see the entire book once once it's out. Uh, I've really enjoyed this, Felipe. Thanks so much. Great, thank you.